Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast. I'm your host, Phil Agnew, and today we'll be discussing the science behind great marketing messages. We all love a good story. There is a great pleasure in getting drawn into a story, immersing yourself in its detail, and having a brief respite from your normal day-to-day. Stories are a fundamental part of society. They have helped human beings evolve into collaborative species that are able to coordinate with one another and trust people that we have never met. Marketers are in many ways storytellers. Marketers want customers to listen to their story, to remember it, and to maybe even share that story with friends. However, for most of us, storytelling is really tough. We don't know what gets consumers engaged and we struggle to generate awareness. To help us understand the science behind great comms and storytelling, I'm joined again by Dr. Matt Johnson and Prince Gooman. Matt and Prince have co-authored Blindsight, a valuable up-to-date look at how behaviour science is influencing consumers today. They also lecture at the Holt International Business School in San Francisco and run the Neuromarketing Bootcamp, which helps marketers better understand the science behind great marketing. To kick off, I asked Prince, a former CMO with 15 years experience in senior marketing positions, what makes a good piece of marketing communication? The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. You know, a good place to start off broadly is to outline the two main variables of communications when it comes to neuromarketing. First is neural coupling. Um, and the next is empathy. I think Matt's the best person to explain neural coupling, and I'll go into the application of it. Yeah, so neural coupling is this really interesting concept that I actually had the the pleasure of, of pioneering when I was a PhD student. So the main takeaway from this research, this was done with fMRI. We actually eavesdropped on the brain as uh, speakers and listeners were communicating in real time. And the main takeaway from this research is communication is very literally the insertion of imagery into 
the other person's head. That the better I am at delivering my message, the more similar my brain state is when I'm holding that information than the brain state of the person I'm talking to. The more I can recreate this, uh, the better communication actually is. And one of the main takeaways there is that you really have to utilize language. You have to speak in a way that your audience understands. So even if we all speak the same actual language, even we're all speaking English, we use language in very, very different ways. Language is beautiful and nuanced and complex and our linguistic knowledge is expansive. And so utilizing language in a very, very specific way that your audience most likes to be spoken to. And that uh, study after study have shown that that's very, very key to effective communication. Before I hand over to Prince, who will talk about how marketers apply this, I just wanted to emphasise Matt's point. Good communication in its most basic form is when the storyteller and the listener's brain state is matched. So let's say someone wanted to tell you a story about their childhood. A great communicator would be able to get you to literally visualise their childhood in the same way as the storyteller. Great communicators have all types of unconscious methods to create this connection. Scottish linguists Martin Pickering and Simon Garrod researched great communicators and noticed something that they termed interactive alignment. Their research showed that after a few minutes of talking, great communicators started to match the speed of speech, the volume, the tone and even the posture of the person they are talking to. This alignment makes it easy for the listener to match their brain state and better visualise their story. Prince has a great analogy for this type of communication. He says it's very similar to a game of Tetris. Whether it's brands communicating one-to-many or whether it's individual communication, one-on-one, communication is a game of Tetris. You, as the speaker, as the sender, have to position the piece of information in a particular way that it sits like Tetris into the receiver's mind. If you do that effectively, you can have similar brain states. And this is, you know, shown higher comprehension and memory and it just affects its communication, right? Um, And one of the things that we have a fun challenge with as, as, as marketers is to be able to do this at scale, right? Doing this at scale it requires having a very strong sense of identity for your own brand and then communicating that identity in the most authentic way possible, right? And, you know, a couple examples come to mind in my head are Jeep, outdoorsy car brand, and the way they communicate their brand is very specific to that audience. And they, I would say, feel fairly authentic, right? And then you got Harley Davidson, like the rebel screw it, burn it all down, kind of rebel who happens to spend 50 grand on a motorcycle that <laughs> that is shined every weekend, you know, and you can see the way Harley-Davidson communicates their entire experience, their brand. It's very unique for them. And they've owned that space in your head. They've owned that, that bit in your head. And, uh, and I think that's, that's what it takes to truly communicate at scale while still keeping neural coupling in mind. So that's the science behind what great communication creates, this neural coupling where the communicator and the receiver see a very similar picture. But how can you improve your communication? What can you add to your marketing comps to make them more effective? Here's Prince talking about tactics that will help you do that and specifically empathy. Neural coupling is sort of, is one of the the foundations 
right? So you've got this natural tendency to uh, to want to mimic and neural coupling is simply, this is what happens when you actually do it effectively, here's what's happening. And then you throw in the empathy piece in there and it's kind of supercharges it a bit. So I think Matt, it'd be cool to, to hear empathy from you, like the neuroscience of empathy. I think most people don't know about the crazy glitch, the broken empathy that we live with. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So neurocoupling really describes one-on-one communication. And as, as Prince mentions, very little of a brand communication is, is one-on-one, right? It's always one-to-many. So one thing that really helps one-to-one communication is empathy. You really feel for the person that you are speaking with. You can understand uh, being in their situation. You're invested in the outcome of, of what they're telling you about. And this is difficult to recreate in a brand one-to-many uh, sort of dynamic. Uh, but one great tool here is empathy. Is, is creating character-driven narratives around what you are trying to say. And we've studied this in, in our lab, and one thing that we found is that story-driven narratives are very, very effective, um, specifically when they revolve around just a single individual. So empathy is a fantastic human ability. It allows us to connect with others, to be invested in their outcome, to, uh, to collectively collaborate, um, but it doesn't scale. You really can't empathize with more than one person. So you can imagine what the person across from you is is feeling and thinking, and you have a mental model of of their internal experience, but try doing that with two people. Try and do that with three people. So it gets very, very difficult. You really can't scale it. And so uh, one thing that seems to be very effective there is trying to describe very, very abstract stories, very uh, long stories, uh, but trying to, to, uh, to anchor this just to a single individuals. You're telling a single anecdote about an individual who had this experience, and these types of stories tend to resonate much more, and they tend to be much uh, much more memorable as well. Research by Paul Slovic, cited in Blindsight, showed how we empathize and connect with individuals over groups. In Paul's experiment, he showed participants an image of a young, impoverished child in need of aid. He then asked participants how much they were willing to donate to that child. He showed another group of participants, two children, instead of one, and again asked how much they'd donate. Turns out we donate much more when the image contains one child rather than two. The researchers expanded the study by then showing a follow-up picture containing eight children. This time the amount of participants willing to donate dropped two times more than before. Now this is pretty irrational. Seeing one person in need should make us think that the problem is fairly small. Seeing eight people in need should make us realise that the problem is larger and obviously there's a need to donate more. But that's not the case. In fact, we often struggle to extrapolate the needs of multiple people. A 1992 survey, again cited in Blindsight, asked participants how much they donate to purchase nets for birds who were dying due to a recent oil spill. There were three versions of this fictitious appeal. One suggested that 2,000 birds could die, another said it could be 20,000, and the third said 200,000 birds could die. Now you'd expect donations to go up with the number of birds, yet in all cases the average donation was $80. It didn't matter if there were 2,000 or 200,000 birds dying to the participants. They would give $80 on average. Matt and Prince have done follow-up studies around brands, asking how likely someone would be to purchase a brand after reading a story about an individual happy customer versus a group of happy customers. 
And again, this irrationality is present. We are far more likely to buy a brand if we read about an individual happy customer rather than a group. We didn't put this in the book, but we, we laugh about this. You look at a Wheaties box or insert your favorite cereal box, right? Around Olympics times. It's always like, ooh, we've got the whole Olympic team on there. Yeah, you're, you're not optimizing for empathy there, right? Putting the whole swim team on there. Sorry, we're talking about US versus Michael Phelps, right? You're going to get more empathy with Michael Phelps. It really is uh, this, this, this blind spot for empathy, but I think uh, marketing has converged upon it. I think they can do better. I think case studies are a great step forward. But case studies are still a story told through a group of people or a company, right? So that's like a great little little uh, opportunity there. And again, don't need billion dollar budgets to do this. Simply go test it. Is if you have a case study, um, write it about the CTO who championed your product and tell the story about products, benefits. And, and the results, but instead of this company or this group of people, make it this particular person who championed it and find ways to tell that story. This isn't just Tony the Tiger or you know, fictional, uh, fictional empathy pulling um, 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 activations. You can do this with case studies right now. Highlighting individuals over groups is a smart way to engage your audience and achieve neural coupling. But it is not the only way. Here's Matt talking about how telling a story about the origins of your product can engage your listeners and your consumers too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think literally when it comes to, to storytelling, there's, there's two things. One is, is sort of how to do storytelling, the mechanisms of storytelling, to be able to communicate the ideas. And then you can sort of look at the effect of storytelling. And the effect of storytelling is really interesting because this is where you get into the science of essentialism. So you get into this, this idea where the actual background story, the origin story of, of what you're interacting with actually makes a big difference in how you perceive it. We see this with food, for example. If you, you go to a restaurant and, and somebody brings you a dish and they describe the origins of the dish, where the ingredients come from, the inspirations from the dish, sort of how it came to be, uh, you actually are going to taste the food uh, in, in a much more enjoyable way. It does have a deep impact on the mental models that your brain is creating for the experience. The same exact food, same exact sensation reaching your, your gustatory system, uh, but one has an essence left by the story. Uh, we see this in the art world all the time, right? So you can have uh, one exact identical replica of, let's say, the Mona Lisa, pixel for pixel, not even an art historian can tell the difference, but it's worth $50 at best compared to the real Mona Lisa, which is priceless, which is literally billions of dollars, and doesn't actually have to do much with the actual uh, physical nature of it and how much you're enjoying it from an aesthetic standpoint, has everything to do with the story behind it. So you can look at the story behind it and, and how that's the one true uh, essential Mona Lisa, and that it really accounts for, for all of its brand, uh, all of its, of its perceptual uh, value. So yeah, the stories has a really, really big impact on, on how we perceive what we're interacting with. If we can see the work, the effort, and the turmoil that's gone into creating something, we will value it more. A great example of this comes from a HBR study set up in a cafeteria. In the study, researchers looked to see if food satisfaction increased when customers could see the chefs through a transparent window. The hypothesis was that customers might rate the food higher if they could see the effort being put into making the food. 
and it turns out being able to see the chefs has a significant effect. When customers and cooks could see one another, food satisfaction went up by 17.3%. Prince goes on to give a great example of how origin storytelling, when combined with highlighting individuals, can increase your enjoyment of a glass of wine. I'll say this, I'll say this honestly, it's, uh, I, I studied to be a sommelier uh, while going to college. And, uh, and, 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 and taste is definitely our weakest sense, but so much of the wine world, um, is able to create an experience that makes you taste more than the wine when you sip it. And 100%, this is a, this is, this is Nora, our, our top shelf cab, right? And Nora, uh, it, the cab is named after, uh, the winemaker's daughter because she hated red wine and specifically cabs were too intense for her. And, and the father set out to tell, to, to make a cab that was uh, acceptable to his daughter's palate. And this is that wine, Nora, right? So you basically just tie all those things in together. You tie the character driven narrative and the empathy piece and you tie it in with the essentialism. And now you're essentially drinking that story when you're drinking a glass of Nora. Combining a character-driven narrative with empathy while also highlighting an origin story is a surefire way to capture someone's interest. Rather than describing your B2B tech product as having cutting-edge AI, talk about how it de-stressed Julie's end-of-year reporting. If you're selling a top-of-the-range electric toothbrush, don't bother talking about its rotations per seconds. Tell a story about how it was designed by a Swiss dentist who spent 60 years perfecting the design. These tips have been proven to work in a fascinating study by Rob Walker and Joshua Glenn. In their study, they paid professional writers to create gripping stories about everyday household items like a potato peeler or a garden gnome. Now, the average price to buy these products was $1.25. They were cheap. But the researchers wanted to see if a gripping story could increase the amount people were willing to spend on eBay. The writers added eBay descriptions that talked about the delight that someone's daughter had after receiving a certain teddy bear for their third birthday. Or they explained how this cutlery set was actually a wedding gift from your long-lost brother who only appeared in your life after years of no contact. These gripping stories put into the eBay descriptions had an impressive impact on how much people were willing to pay. On average, these everyday products were sold for $100. That is 80 times more than the original cost, generating 8000 in revenue, which the researchers kindly donated. Prince and Matt in Blindsight say this study helps show why Etsy, for example, is able to compete with Amazon. The personal storytelling behind Etsy's products draws people in over the bland descriptions on Amazon. I found these insights from Matt and Prince fascinating, but I was still keen to learn about brands that have successfully changed their communication strategy to benefit from these tips. I wasn't disappointed. Matt goes on to give a great example of how a spring water company, Perrier, understood the science behind great comms to turn their sales around. Perrier is, is one of those companies where they, they quite frankly, shouldn't exist. And, and when you look at, at, at water bottle companies just in general, they, they just shouldn't exist. They, they defy logic when you look at the situation they came to in uh, the 1950s and 60s, where... In, in most parts of America, you can get potable drinking water for free. 
And so why would you want to pay for a bottle of water you get from a supermarket? And Perrier had this, this great idea to put bubbles in it, which is a great differentiator, but nobody wanted bubbles. They, they did market research, they did testing, and this wasn't a, an attribute of the product that people actually cared about. And so what they utilized at that point was a, a trip down Essence Lane. They said it's not just bubbles, it's not just carbon dioxide, it actually comes from the wellsprings of this mythological geyser in France that is known for everlasting life and this, this amazing storytelling having to do with the, the origin story of this bubbly water. And they actually uh, flew journalists out to their water source. They can get journalists a taste of this lore and this mythology having to do with the origin of this water. When this was incorporated into the branding and the marketing of Perrier, sales skyrocketed. This became sort of a high-class drink. They actually priced it at a premium and people were willing to pay quite a lot for this, on its surface, just bubbly water. But in the mind of the consumers, this was this uh, essential, uh, it, was, it was French and it was fancy and it was luxurious and it was all tied to the essence of where the water actually came from. And, you know, a, a less genuine example of that, that is arguably, I, wanna, I wouldn't say equally effective, but it does play into the, you know, a trip down essentialism lane is Dasani. Anyone who knows, who speaks Italian knows that's not a real Italian word, right? Dasani sounds Italian. It has the essence of something fancy European, Italian-esque. It's not. It was made in the lab. The word was, right? The water is tap water. And, and that's, just, that's what's fascinating is like you create the essence of that and you probably a part of you who buys it. If, if, you're, if you have a really heavy opinion on a heavy preference on what type of water and Dasani is that water, that's, that's exactly essentialism, branding that little playground in between objectivity and subjectivity that is having you taste it better. And hey, who are we to say yes or no, right? That seems like a pretty ethical application or marketing to me. Perrier built this story around the origin of their brand, this natural spring, which delivered incredibly crisp and carbonated natural water. Their marketing slogan is naturally sparkling water from the center of the earth. And it worked. The marketing team originally spent $5 million on the marketing campaign to sell the story, and after a few years, they'd recouped over $500 million in sales. In fact, they helped kickstart the sales of bottled water globally, which today is bought more than coffee, tea, alcohol, and juice. And that's despite the fact that top sellers like Dasani and Pure Leaf all come from the tap. Clearly, smart branding and storytelling can have a huge effect on what we buy. But before we go, I wanted to leave you with some final thoughts from Prince about how to apply these principles. It can be quite daunting sitting in a marketing meeting, wanting to suggest these ideas, but not being sure if they will resonate. Well, here's Prince explaining how he did it. I came from a place, it took, it took me a lot, it took me a ton of testing at a small to medium-sized company to learn this stuff and then apply it to a publicly traded company. So I've been there. And I think it's worth underlining that these tests that Matt and I just talked about, right? You don't have to be a Dove or a Bose to come up with a neuromarketing optimized tagline, but understanding some of these concepts that, that, that Matt and I are so passionate about um, and then going to test on your own. You don't need a psychometric department. You don't need a data scientist 
on, on staff. You just need to think creatively about the tests you can do and measure, but do learn about stuff like pain framing or anchoring, anchoring in a tagline versus anchoring for the pricing. And this is, and I mean, it's unfortunate that we've got to jump off, but ultimately, you know, it, it, what we're talking about here is sort of the tip of the iceberg, you know, um, and, and, and truly that's sort of what drove us is we wanted consumers to truly understand what's happening, but we also want marketers because the truth is, it's only the biggest of the brands that truly understand behavior science down to the level that Matt and I are trying to communicate it. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I think, I think the SMBs usually get left out because they think neuromarketing is this big, shiny, expensive thing. Well, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And I think that's what drove us to write this book is we want consumers to better understand their own behavior. And we want companies to be able to do, to understand the impact of their things. A lot of SMBs, I'm sure you know this, well, they're just, testing stuff, not realizing what's happening at the level of the brain. I think there's value there. I think if that's worth highlighting, um, you don't need a big budget, you know, start with this book at the very least and under, and start with all the other books that are in the normal marketing place um, and start with our 12 chapters because they, they cover a lot of, a lot of stuff. Great storytellers are able to get listeners to view their world in the same way as them. They do this by using language that's familiar by highlighting individual characters over groups, and by building an essence around the topic while also talking about the origins behind a story. Undeniably, there's still a lot more behind great comms, but this is some great tips or some great foundations to start with. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I'd really recommend picking up a copy of Matt and Prince's book, Blind Sights. Now, some business books feel like a real struggle to read, but this is one that I think you won't be able to put down. Matt and Prince also run neuromarketing boot camps, which can help you and your teams level up your understanding and help you start to apply these principles at your work. The link to both of those are in the show notes. Now, I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So to make sure you don't miss that episode, please hit subscribe or sign up to our mailing list. And if you've got any thoughts, feedback or suggestions for the show, please get in touch with me. You can find me on Twitter at P underscore Agnew and on LinkedIn at Phil Agnew. Now, that's all for today. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.